Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Because you're about to get an hour of Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank the Killers for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. My name is John McAdam. Thank you for listening. Um, Before we get started, I got to get three things out of the way. Number one, if you enjoy this podcast, you are invited to join our Facebook group. Just search for Stick to Wrestling and It'll come up. It's a bunch of cool guys talking about wrestling and sometimes some other things. It's a lot of fun. Please, if you listen to this podcast, follow on Twitter if you'd like. I have some great wrestling content. I'm usually good at like retweeting cool stuff. Twitter is funny. It's the more followers you have, the more followers you get. It's it's weird. I was under a thousand like two weeks ago, and now I'm up to like eleven hundred. So thank you all very much. And if you want to donate to the show, my email address for PayPal is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small or too much. And I want to thank Mark Rock and Rollin for his generous donation. Thank you, Mark. And with that, I am going to bring on our co-host this week, Jamie Ward. Jamie, thank you for coming on. How you been? Oh, thanks for having me back. I've been doing wonderful. Good. I'm glad to hear that. You are a new grandfather as you were, we were speaking off the air. I want to congratulate you on the air, you and Tara. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right. I came up with an idea for a show format that I wish I had come up with almost three and a half years ago when this show was being formulated, first being recorded. We're going to talk about a territory, what was going on there 40 years ago. We're going to talk about the World Wrestling Federation in the fall of 1981. Jamie, you're like me. You grew up watching this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Every single Saturday, watching, you know, all the local WWF stuff and any other wrestling I can get my hands on. Yep. By this point, yeah, by this point, 1981, I was getting Georgia. The funny thing about like the WWF compared to most other wrestling promotions, I mean, I could spend an hour talking about just one week of Georgia television because a lot went on. Not a lot went on in the old WWF. No, it was slow and proddy. And you were it was the long game that you were in for. Exactly. And it worked. I, you know, you can't complain about that. The spectrum was always full, the Boston Garden was always full, Madison Square Garden was always full. Yeah, every single month. Absolutely. And very enthusiastic crowds. The biggest story in the WWF from 1981 was the WWF championship was held up in New York State in an absolutely crazy scenario. I remember watching it with my friends on the WOR show at midnight and just being like, what the hell are they doing? Greg Valentine versus Bob Backlund for the WWF championship. Let me start by saying, and I've mentioned this on the show before, I thought the title was changing hands on this night. I thought this was it. The pattern was a babyface would hold the title for like three or four years, and that's where Bob Backlund was. I thought Greg Valentine was going to make an excellent interim champion, a la superstar Billy Graham. Coming in, I, I thought this was it. Jamie, did you have any recollection about you know, how you felt coming into this match? Yeah, I didn't really think uh, Valentine was going to be the guy. I really thought Morocco was going to be the guy. But that's a different story for another time. But uh, back when it was finished up with Morocco uh, around this uh, period, he was still facing Morocco in the uh, the spectrum. They were they had a 60 minute draw, and they went to the uh, 90 minute time limit in the next one. That was a Texas Death Match. I think they did the same thing in Boston. So I really thought he was going to be the guy. But of course, New York's ahead of all the other markets. At that exactly. Time. Most wrestlers would make their non-TV debut at Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund, or most of the, the new heels, I should say. I also want to mention, Jamie, that I thought the same thing you did after Valentine lost. I'm like, okay, when Morocco comes back, he's going to win it. And I was jubilant when he returned December 1982. I'm like, well, Graham won it. Like, you know, he had a very short time between tours. Morocco had a very short time between tours. I, I thought it was going to be him. and. Obviously, I was disappointed. Yeah, even at that time, I thought Morocco also uh, had a good shot of getting it. Even with 
the manager changed to Lou Albano from the Grand Wizard. I still thought at that time Morocco had a decent shot, but the Valentine feud, it, it worked for MSG. It definitely did. This was his second tour of the WWF, his second go-round against Bob Backlund. I mean, and I'll tell you something. On Monday, the New York Daily Post would put out the Madison Square Garden results. I was not going to ask my dad to borrow the car. I was going to ask him for a ride. I knew what the answer was going to be. I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go out and take a walk before school, which I never did. And I walk down to the 7-Eleven down the street. I look at the, you know, the results, and it just says Greg Valentine D. Bob Backlund. And I was like, okay, maybe we're halfway there, but that that could mean anything. I looked for uh, a little clip saying that the title changed hands. It wasn't there. So I had to wait another five days to find out what happened. Well, fortunately for me, we had the USA Network, and I was watching MSG shows from the September before. It was on every month, just like clockwork. So I saw this card live on USA. Okay, so what was your reaction to the finish? Let me tell everyone what the finish was in case they don't know. Both Backland and Valentine were wearing black trunks and black boots. After a ref bump, Bob Backlund pins Greg Valentine pretty clean in the middle, but the ref is staggered. Valentine gets up and raises his hand like he won, and the ref just gets confused and said, oh, that must have been Valentine on top, and the title changed hands. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Now, Vincent commentary does make the statement that John Stanley, the, the referee, wasn't even looking at whose shoulders were down. So, of course, when Valentine jumps up, Stanley assumes, storyline, that Valentine was the victor, and they hand him the belt. Now, in Madison Square Garden, he is never announced as the champion, though. They quickly have all the officials come running into the ring. There was the one old guy who I guess was supposed to be the New York State Athletic Commission person, and you see back on throwing a fit. You guys can't do this. This isn't right. You know, Skolan's arguing, and then they uh, finally Finkel makes the announcement that that the title is going to be held up pending an investigation by the New York Athletic Commission and the World Wrestling Federation. Now, to me, that is absolutely crazy, because if you go back and look at the tape, you're, you're either going to do one thing or the other. You're going to have the referee's decision stand or you're going to say, well, Backlund pinned him. Backlund's the champion. I just I mean, I get it. It's wrestling. But to me, it never made sense. And I do remember watching the midnight show with my friends the Saturday after. And we were all like, yeah, we get it. It's pro wrestling. But like this was I thought this was like way over the top. Yeah. Plus, when you watch the match, Valentine has Backlund up into the airplane spin. That's when Backlund's foot hits the hits uh, John Stanley. And when Backlund falls on top of him, Backlund does a face plant. He doesn't really cover him. His top half of his body is on top of Valentine, but Backlund's basically arms are uh, flat back and uh, face first into the canvas. I watched it yesterday. So it, it was a very awkward finish. Yeah, I watched it yesterday. I remember not liking the match. It was better than I thought it was. I haven't seen it in like 10 years. It wasn't terrible. But you're right, that that finish, particularly Backlund pinning Valentine, was really awkward. Yeah, it was. All right. Uh, anyway, I came out of this thinking, okay, Valentine might still win the title because either A, he can win the he can win the rematch and have Backlund lose the title without getting pinned, which, you know, you, the WWF, there's always a, a controversy around the singles title changing hands or but they just didn't do it. I mean, I I was very taken aback. I'm like, OK, who's going to beat this Backlund guy? And the answer was now I think it's going to be Morocco. And that's that's why I thought at the time. But, you know, they, they do have the return Texas death match the following month. And um, for a couple of minutes, I thought Valentine might take it, but you just saw what was uh, what was going to happen. Yeah, that, well, that they were going to keep the belt on Bob. Yeah, and here's another thing: the WWF, I think they greatly underestimated their cable audience because we're watching this up in New Hampshire. We go to the Boston Garden shows every month, and you know, okay, the title is held up in New York alone, but. Bob is champion everywhere but New York State. That made no sense. And like I said, if, if 
cable didn't exist, I'd be like, okay, I, I see this. But now we're going into Boston knowing that Bob is kind of a quasi-champion, if that makes any sense. Yeah, because you're right. The angle was only for the New York market. And um, when the November card came on for the uh, Spectrum, they had interviews with both Backlund and Valentine where they actually come clean because I guess they finally realized, hey, more than just New York is is seeing the, the New York shows now. And Backlund does an interview saying how in the state of New York, he's not currently recognized as the champion. And Valentine does an interview saying that he is the rightful champion because he beat Backlund in New York. He's the one that had his hands raised and he left the ring with the belt. So they did acknowledge it on Philadelphia Prism Television, but nothing on the syndicated shows. There was no word of it at all. No, I I thought the whole thing was a bad idea and it was a, a big disappointment in my eyes. Now, speaking of fall 1981, a big deal happened. The New Jersey Meadowlands had their first wrestling show. This is back when that building was brand spanking new. And Bruno Sammartino wrestled his retirement match. And I remember it being on, again, WOR. Bruno comes out and he says, nothing lasts forever. I don't want to be one of those guys who's like, oh, he's okay now, but you should have seen him years ago. And he, you know, just basically, this is going to be my last match. And I remember, again, watching with my friends, and we were all devastated. Like, I was trying to not, I was trying not to cry. And I I managed, but it was like, just such a gut punch. Like, there's going to be no more Bruno. This is it. Yeah, well, again, this was just the New York market thing. I don't remember this airing on Philadelphia television at all. Now I went back and, and watched the interview you're talking about over the weekend. And uh, Bruno was very good in that interview saying exactly what you just said about it. He, he don't want to be remembered for, for what he is. He wanted to be remembered for what he was. It was a really good interview. And like you, we did not get any notice of this in Boston. And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way because they should have at least aired the interview where, you know, Bruno said he was retiring. He's, you know, last match in New Jersey. I don't know why they didn't do that. If if you didn't get WOR, Bruno just disappeared. Yeah, actually, um, I went back and did a little research today. And Bruno's last match that I can I can tell was in the Boston Garden on uh, like March 16th where he beats um, Stan Hansen in a cage match. Yeah, well, that was... I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find another match that he participated in before the retirement match. No, Bruno, as soon as he lost the title, I mean, I accidentally found this out a few months ago. He basically went right away. He, you know, almost never wrestled very rarely. But yeah, he was a fixture in Boston. And like I said, it, it disappointed me. I would have liked to have seen a Bruno Sammartino last match in Boston. I understand. Okay. If he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't want to do it. But you know, one thing we have Greg Valentine versus Bob Backlund with the title held up. We've got Bruno Sammartino's retirement match. I don't know why they didn't put, have a show with both of those events on it on closed circuit. Yeah, they should have took the shot, but however, it was kind of, you're getting into October. Well, closed circuit. Yes. They could have done that across the territory. I thought you were going to go into like another safe stadium show, but uh, they couldn't go outside once October rolled around. But they did have the momentum with with the WOR, with the USA Network, with Prism, and with their syndicated package. That they could have probably done. What's the word I'm looking for, John? You just said it. Oh, closed circuit. Oh, closed circuit. Yeah, uh, they could have done closed circuit up and down the uh, Eastern Seaboard there. Yeah, been I, very successful with. I, I think so too. I think that um. The WWF got burned five years earlier putting the Shea Stadium show on closed circuit. But number one, I mean, that was a two-match show with Andre the Giant and Chuck Wepner and Bruno's return against Stan Hansen. But, you know, they got burned because they spent so much money on Muhammad Ali and no one was interested in seeing Muhammad Ali against a wrestler from Japan who we just didn't know about. Right. If they'd have gone with a more high-profile professional wrestler, uh, I mean, American wrestler against Ali, they, they would have done much better. 
Yeah, they would they would have done way better. I know that was a big burn for them, but like I think they might have done well with this. I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, it was it was a very emotional moment for me. I mean, it came out of nowhere. Bruno does a sit down interview and he says, you know, this is going to be it. Yeah, it was a uh, it was truly sad because you knew you weren't going to see Bruno again. Well, wink, wink. He shows back up five years later. <laughs> <laughs> That ends his career in a match in Alabama doing a job, I think. But at least we got to see maybe not Bruno in his all his greatness in the late 60s to the early 70s. But at least we did get a taste of Bruno from 78 through 81. Yeah, definitely. I think Bruno, it was his sincere intent to retire. And I think in order to get David's foot in the door, he agreed to do a few dates in like 85 and 86. Ironically enough, Bruno's last match was in Baltimore, teaming with Hulk Hogan, of all people, against One Man <laughs> Gang and King Kong Bundy. Okay, so that was his last match. All right. I just remember hearing something about the Alabama match where Vince okay. forced them to go down there. All right. No, I, I, I was lucky enough to, see, to get to see Bruno against Roddy Piper in a cage in Boston in early 1986. The other big feud they have going on, no one really knows how Andre the Giant broke his leg in a hotel room in Rochester, New York, but it was a legit break, and they blamed it on his opponent from the previous night, Killer Khan, and we got a big feud out of that, and boy, talk about Killer Khan lucking himself into a huge angle. Oh, absolutely, because he had already um, gone around the horn with Backlund in in some of the places, and he got pinned. And I think Killer Khan was on his way out when this happened. And, yeah, it, it drew big money. I mean, even um, what was it, by November, they'd even taken it to Toronto for back-to-back matches up there. I believe they, they took the match to Atlanta and New Orleans as well. That's something I should have looked up before the show. But, I mean, it was a big angle, and the matches were really good. Uh, I mean, Andre was trying at least. And Killer Khan, you know, he was really good in the ring. Oh, yeah. I never had a problem with Killer Khan. I mean, I, I had watched him on the Mid-South. was that? 7980 on that old satellite program network. And uh, the, the guy was, a, was an animal. And I knew if he ever got to WWF, he would probably take off. And, and like you said, he lucked into this Andre angle. And that just took him to the, um, to the next level again. Totally. I mean, he had his match against Bob Backlund at December 1980 and early 81. He's, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Boston. So, yeah, this you're right. He was probably on his way out when they decided, you know what, let's blame this on the biggest heel we have, Killer Khan. And Andre wasn't even really out that long. He looks like he was out about six or seven weeks before um, he returned. But they made it seem like it was a lot longer than that. And then they run an angle on TV where Andre is doing an interview and Fred Blassie comes out and confronts him and Andre grabs Blassie. And then while while Andre has his leg in a cast, he's attacked by Killer Khan. I mean, I, I believe it or not, I never saw that coming. And I mean, talk about, wow, like you didn't jump someone whose leg is in no. a cast. Come on. And who came to Andre the Giants rescue? Vince McMahon. Vince, Vince drops the microphone. He kind of gets in front of a killer con trying to push him back. That, that made it look so good because it looked like things legitimately got out of control. And I always thought wrestling needed more of that. It looked like we were seeing something that we weren't supposed to say. Oh yeah. Absolutely. That wrestling, especially today needs more of that. I hate to go down to steal the Jim Cornette, you know, theories, but you got to have something real or appear to be real to get people's extra interest. Yeah. You have to be able to turn off your brain. Like, you know, it's, it's fake or whatever word you want to use, but you have to be able to turn off your brain and just enjoy it for what it is. And I don't complain too much about today's product, but I mean, that element is gone. You can't turn off your brain. No, I I was just watching, um, the beginning of Monday Night Raw before we started to uh, record. And it, and that's exactly what I did. And I turned my brain off, watched five guys in a ring all, you know, berate each other. Then they beat the hell out of Seth Rollins. It's great. I, I have not watched Raw in a long time. I, I basically stick 
to the uh, monthly specials on Peacock, which I enjoy, but like that's all I want. <laughs> you know, that's all the WWE I need about three yeah, I, hours a, a month. I DV, I still DVR everything and uh, I just kind of blow through it. If there's something that, you know, piques my interest, I'll stay and watch. If not, I just keep on, keep on going by. Makes sense. And yeah, it doesn't cost anything to DVR it. So you're doing exactly. the right thing. All right, so we get to have the Andre versus Khan feud that ended in Mongolian stretcher matches, and we yes. all know how these things end. Killer Khan gets put on the stretcher. They get him out of the ring. Bell rings, and immediately he's off the stretcher wanting to fight again. That's the only finish to any stretcher match. Yep, that's the same finish. I don't know if they took it around the horn back in the day, but Billy Graham and Bob Backlund in Philadelphia, anyway, did a Sicilian stretcher match, and that's Basically, what happened after Graham got carted off, all of a sudden, they announced back on the winner, and here comes Billy Graham back in the ring again. Off the top of my so, head, so I, same thing. Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, I knew they finished it off with a cage match in both New York and Boston. And yeah, Philadelphia got something different, which is kind of cool. Yeah, Philadelphia, a lot of times, was different from Boston and, and New York. Uh, even the main event challengers, a lot of times. Guys like Mike Sharp would get a shot in Philadelphia, but never got the MSG shot. Victor, Just as an example. Yeah, uh, Iron Mike Sharp got a shot in Boston. Victor Rivera got a shot in Philadelphia. Right, and so did Spiros Arian. I don't know if Spiros got a shot in um, MSG or Boston. I, I'm not remembering Boston. I know he got a shot at MSG. But anyway, next up. We have a big surprise. Now, coming into the November 23rd, I think that was 21st or 23rd Madison Square Garden show. Again, I'm halfway expecting a title change. Greg Valentine is going to get the championship from Bob Backlund. We got a title change, and it wasn't the one I expected. Pedro Morales, who had been with the WWF for just under two years by this point, defeats Magnificent Morocco in a Texas death match to reclaim the Intercontinental Championship. Jamie, what were your feelings on that? Yeah, I didn't see it coming at all because what Morocco just won it, what, like June, late May, early June, at the Spectrum, and they turned it right around. Looking back at it now, there was a telltale giveaway that Morocco might be losing when he walks in the ring with a beard and his hair slicked back. That was, um, it, I understand he, he had the same appearance in Florida before he left come to the WWF. He had the same appearance in Georgia before he came back to the WWF a year later. So he grows a beard in, slicks the hair back, and Pedro uh, took the belt back, which was surprising. But immediately, Pedro falls into that feud with Greg Valentine after this. Yes, he did. That was the beginning of 82 when Valentine suplexed him outside the ring and I mean, it was a great angle because, you know, back then, now you do something like that, it's no big deal. Back then, it's like, you know, Pedro's on, on TV complaining that his back hurts and it hurts when he drives. And, you know, it, it got the feud going. Pedro was really a good, no, I think he was a great number two behind Bob Backlund in 1982. Yes, he was. I, I never got Pedro when I was a kid up, up to that point. I didn't see Pedro during his first run with the title. And when he showed up, what, what, 79, late 79, early 80, I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. I, I don't get this guy. I, I know the name, but I wasn't overwhelmed. But from that, uh, when he takes the belt back with Morocco, it's almost, in my opinion, that Pedro stepped up his game. And he was a very good number two to Backlund until he loses what, back to Morocco a year later. Yeah, he was very credible. I mean, he was a former WWF champion. They mentioned that pretty much every time we saw him. But, you know, good. That's what you do. And, yeah, he came back, I want to say, March or February 1980. I thought Pedro was conspicuously absent throughout Superstar Billy Graham's championship reign. I mean, I, I have no idea why they did not bring him back. Yeah, well, he was working other territories at that point, right? Down in Florida and... Uh... AWA in Florida. AWA in Florida, right. Yeah, but I mean, still, that, you know, you can come to Madison Square Garden and have, you know, probably two matches against superstar Billy Graham around the horn. I mean, to this day, I don't know why they didn't do that because I thought Pedro was going to be, you know, a great challenger. Then again, who do you push out? 
I mean, you know, Dusty Rhodes, Mil Moscaris, Ivan Putsky. I mean, come to think of it, Graham had nothing, you know, nothing but solid challengers at Madison Square Garden, Boston, and Philly, et cetera. Right. And he had another uh, after dropping the belt. I mean, after beating Bruno for the belt, he still had a long run with Bruno that went into the next year in which the, the famous cage match where he beats Bruno in Philadelphia on Saturday night and, and then back on beats Graham for the title on Monday night. Yeah, they did. Uh, I have seen that match. I'm sure you have too, Jamie, where Bruno hits Graham so hard that he goes flying through the cage door and that's how Graham wins the match. And yeah, two days later, he is a former champion. That was the first card I ever saw in prison. Oh, wow. And, and then I saw just about everyone after that. Uh, I wish I had that. We They didn't start airing the Boston Garden shows until 1985. And by then, you know, wrestling was not just to me. It wasn't as much fun anymore. No, but the crowds were still hot at that point. They were. I mean, Hulk Hogan got over like a million bucks. I can't tell you anything different. We have a bit of a faction arriving in the WWF in fall 1981. Adrian Adonis and Jesse the Body Ventura arrive together. They are wrestling in singles matches, but obviously, you know, they're they're talking about them being the East-West Connection, both managed by Fred Blassie. Right, and I was very disappointed they never teamed them up. But both of them did prove to be, um, get back on a run for their money, run for his money with their title shots in both MSG and across the circuit. You know, I didn't know what work was in 1981, but I knew this Adrian Adonis guy was really good. He had two excellent matches in Boston against Bob Backlund. He actually had a good match against Andre the Giant where he just bumped like a pinball for 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. he That was definitely his strong game was, was the bumping. I mean, his Madison Square Garden... Uh, matches were awesome too especially what was it they have a texas death match and he comes to the ring wearing a new york islanders jersey i believe that i mean just great heat in my opinion and he had you know the madison square garden matches were excellent adonis had two excellent matches against backland in uh, landover maryland that are out there yeah because they used to be on uh, usa network also not every month cap center was on but they were on every couple of months yeah, Jesse Ventura, in his book and in interviews, was saying that, you know, he didn't understand why they made him have Fred Blassie as a manager because Jesse was such a good talker. And it's like, we've had good talkers before. We've had Ken Patera, superstar Billy Graham, et cetera, who all had managers. That's just the way it was done up here. Right. There were three managers, and you're going to get one of them. Now, what was awkward about that at the time was, Blassie was known for having the uh, the foreign invaders or the guys that uh, would turn heel. He had that whole stable of uh, traitors at one point. And here's two just kind of normal American guys that he was managing this time around. When we watched wrestling, and again, my friends and I would get together at midnight and watch the WOR show. I mean, one of the, I mean this is some of the be- most fun stuff in my life. They would make an, an announcement and like um, and making his debut in, in in the World Wrestling Federation would be Angelo King Kong Mosca. And we'd all play the game like, OK, who's managing him? And, you know, that was always fun. And Adonis and Ventura seemed like Grand Wizard guys, right? Oh, that's who I believe I should have gone with was the Wiz. And while the Wiz could talk, most of his people that he managed could talk like the Kempatera in his second run, Pat Patterson. Yeah. That's I, another the, example. So a lot of his guys could always, always talk. Yeah, Sergeant Slaughter. He really didn't need the, the but, wizard as a mouthpiece. Yeah. And you know, the thing, the reason why I think they put them with Blassie is because wizard already had Morocco. He already had Valentine. So it was kind of Blassie needed a singles guy to manage. I mean, our expression used to be that, okay, Albano managed the tag teams, Blassie managed the evil foreign menaces, and Wizard got the guys who were good. Exactly. All right. Now, tag team scene. Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, speaking of evil foreign menaces, come in and they are getting a giant push. Mr. Fuji had been here multiple times throughout the 70s with Professor Toru Tanaka as his partner. 
Now we've got Mr. Saito. I remember being a little bit surprised, but I think Tanaka was more or less out of the business by this point. Yeah, for the most part, he was doing you know, some shots here and there. I, I believe the last place he worked was, uh, was Knoxville in like 78, 79. We didn't see much of uh, Tanaka after that point. Tanaka made a comeback for something called California Championship Wrestling in 1985. <laughs> and Victor it, Rivera. Like 60-year-old Victor Rivera out there. This might have been the worst promotion I've ever seen. And when I say that, I have seen Tomko. I have seen Killer Kowalski's Independent. It used to be on Channel 25. Hey, this promotion was bad. That was, a, that was good stuff, those Tomko tapes. <laughs> I, get, I would get Calgary tapes and the guy that was sending them to me just to, to bust my stones would throw a Tomco right, right in the middle of the Calgary tapes. <laughs> Tomco was hard to watch. But yeah, Fuji and Saido, I mean, the WWF kind of broke their pattern. They would have a babyface uh, tag team, yeah, lose the titles, and then they would go away. Rick Martell and Tony Gurria actually won the titles back from the Moondogs, something that the WWF just didn't do at the time. And you could kind of see they were going, going to do it. They announced the match on TV, and Martel and Gurria promised the fans that they were going to win. And even back then, I was like, wait a minute. When the good guys promise something, they can't not do it. Yep, you're, you're right again, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, so Fuji and Saito come in. They get the monster push. They have a battle royal in Madison Square Garden that a tag team wins and they split the money. I mean, that mean to me, that means they're getting a massive push. And they did. And uh, Jamie, I don't know. Let me get your opinion from your days of watching the WWF. What tag team got the most heat? Because to me, these guys run away with it. Yeah, I, I can't think of anybody that probably got more heat than them. Maybe the Samoans. For a little bit, but I think more, people were more scared of the Samoans than anything else because they really didn't know what to make of those guys. They, they weren't sure if they were really that nuts or not. But uh, yeah, Fuji and Saito, they, uh, if you ever uh, get, or those out there, you get a chance to watch the tag team title match where, the, where it changes hands. Fuji just covers Martel with a handful of salt. I mean, Martel had it everywhere. It was pure salt, Jamie. Pure salt, to Vince 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 pure salt. Look at that. That's pure salt. Not to be confused with mixed salt. Bath rock salt, salt, whatever. <laughs> Bath salt. Oh, but you're right. That was like a giant cloud of, of, of salt. I went to see a show, just to give everyone an idea of how much everyone up here hated Mr. Fuji, okay? especially Mr. Fuji. I was at a, at a show in Lemonster, Massachusetts. This is like early 1982, and Fuji gets in the ring. He hasn't even done anything yet, and some crazy fan goes after him. Like this, it, it was the only time I have ever seen a premeditated attack against a wrestler, and it was against Mr. Fuji. Yeah, they, they hated Fuji. I mean, when I would go to the uh, to the Spectrum, he might have got the most uh, jeers and boos. On his way to the ring. No, he was there. There was something about taking, him, and people taking swipes at him. Yeah, I mean, there was something about Mr. Fuji that everyone hated. But you know what? I didn't realize it at the time. This was kind of embarrassing. I thought Saito sucked, and Mr. Fuji was the star of the team. Like, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to look back on that. I thought so at the time, also, because I knew the name Mr. Fuji. I wasn't really that familiar with Saito now. As years have gone by, I find out Saito was everywhere, and he was like a big deal in Florida at one point. And then, what, a year later, they had that uh, Tiger Mask Mr. Saito match on television. Yeah, people, I'm I'm not going to say people still talk about that match today, but, I mean, 10, 15 years later, people were still talking about that match. I I mean, for WWF television, that was a big thing. But uh, one more thing uh, on Mr. Fuji and Saito. Sure. I think. They took Captain Lou to the next level. Captain Lou going Japanese was a freaking riot. I agree those, with those, you. Definitely... Those local interviews were next level. I know he was drunk as a skunk, but they were next level. I mean, him, him speaking Japanese, oh, it was, it was awesome. 
It really was. He would dress in a traditional Japanese manner, or at least one that a pro wrestling fan would take as such. And you're right. I, I cannot think of Lou Albano at a higher plane than than now when he's with Fuji and Saito and he's he's dressing like them. And when they would do the uh, six-man tag matches with Albano and they'd all get in there and they'd do the squat and then they all three of them would throw the salt up in the air and clap their hands together. You know, that's where LeBron James <laughs> got it from. <laughs> I've never thought of that. That's absolutely great. All right. Um, yeah, LeBron's an old see. school wrestling fan. I did not know that. I didn't either. I just said it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, David Letterman really is an old school wrestling fan, so you never know. All right. Um, Angelo Mosca is in the WWF at this point. He is doing a gimmick where he will not pin the wrestlers he is up against on TV. It'd be one, two, and Mosca would pick the guy up four or five times per match. He is wrestling someone named Victor Mercado. And he keeps doing this, and finally Dick Worley disqualifies him. Oh, everyone's jubilant. Mosca's getting what he deserves after all these weeks. Patterson, Pat Patterson, who's now an announcer, goes out to interview Dick Worley, and Angelo Mosca picks up this uh, metal water pitcher, and he slams it across Pat Patterson's head. Poor Pat, he wasn't doing anything. He was just interviewing the ref. Yeah, I, and I don't think that water pitcher was gimmicked. I mean... That was a loud thud. And then the water goes flying all over the place. Oh, it was awesome. And, and one thing they did really well with that angle, in my opinion, is the ne- it was either the next week or the week after Angelo Mosca gets his rematch against Victor Mercado, and it was not pretty. I mean, that, to me, that was a really good detail. Yeah, actually, that was a three-week process. It wasn't Mercado. They did it the first week. I forget who Mosca beat. Patterson interviews Dick Worley, who says, I'm not putting up with this stuff anymore. I'm going to start disqualifying guys that don't finish with the pin. Now, in that match, he allowed Mosca to finish it off and get the pin. Then the next week was the Patterson angle. And then you're right, the third week, Mosca just destroyed him. Yeah, and Patterson and Mosca go around the horn uh, wrestling each other. Of course, Pat Patterson comes out on top. Mosca's run in the WWF really wasn't terribly memorable, in my opinion. I mean, he was a big, nasty-looking guy, and but it just never seemed to click for some reason. Because he could walk and talk and do exactly what he wants. <laughs> that, that was his catchphrase, and this was back when Sergeant Slaughter... When every time he came to the ring, the chants of Gomer were deafening. And Moscow was trying to get his own thing going on by saying, don't call me ping pong Mosca. And yes. he didn't. And, <laughs> okay, um, you got it. And then when I first got uh, TBS, he was on the last or the very first episode I ever saw. And the fans in that little TBS studio were all calling him ping pong. And he went running out with his hands above his ears, never to be seen again until the WWF. I had no idea that ever happened. So it, it worked in Atlanta. It just did not work up here. No, the fans never really caught on to the whole ping pong thing. But Mosca did have a, you know, a pretty decent run. He had shots at, against Backlund. And then we're, we're talking about that November 23rd MSG card where he takes on the American dream himself. Yeah, and he also got a couple of title shots against Pedro Morales as well. So just for some reason, I, I felt like it didn't work out or maybe... I saw Mosca in the magazines and just thought he was, I don't know, better than he was. Yeah, he, he was gone by the beginning of 92, 82. No, definitely. Uh, another thing that happens, Ivan Putski makes his return to the WWF after about a year and a half. Ivan Putski was a huge star in the WWF during this period. I mean, you know, he wasn't a good wrestler. A lot of people just didn't like his style. I, I you, When he was in Florida... You could tell Gordon Soley was just not crazy about this guy's entire act, but it worked up here. If, you know, if Ivan Putski was coming to your local high school gym, the place would be packed. Oh, yeah. I, I, I personally, I loved Ivan Putski. You know, the Polish hammer and everything. You hardly ever saw Putski do a job, but the fans are really behind him. And the, the highlight for me was you always knew when it was the last 
match of a TV taping because he'd sing that. That Bobby Vinton song. Yeah, the Bobby Vinton song, yes. So here and, he is. And, and all the crowd would join in with him. Yeah, it got over. You know, this guy would, would he didn't even know the words half the time of this Bobby Vinton song. And But the crowd, you know, got into it. They would sing along and, you know, he was, you know, there was a time he was the number two baby face in the WWF and him coming back was a big deal. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's, um, he never had any memorable feuds, but he would always catch the guys after they were done with Backlund and then Morales. And then usually they'd wind up, uh, feuding with, uh, Putsky, uh, like Jesse in 82 when, when he feuded with Ivan Paduski. That that was actually 84. They did the whole thing with uh, Tony Atlas and Jesse Ventura in 1982, where they had right, the arm it, wrestling match. In the second, and, they had the cage match. Yeah. Where where Atlas actually goes over the top. First time I ever saw anyone go over the top to win a cage match. But I thought he had some matches with uh, Putski in there, too. Uh, he probably did. I mean, everyone wrestled everyone in the WWF back then. And, and, and we liked it that way. It wasn't the same show every single night. Oh no! I mean, I've been I scoured that uh, history of the WWF website where it gives you the results for everything. And you know, unlike some territories where night after night, Memphis, for example, they ran the same show seven nights in a row. WWF really didn't do that too much. No, they didn't. By the way, shout out to Graham and Ron for all the great work. Uh, Richard, that, excuse me, Richard Land for all the great right. work they do on their website. I mean, yeah, so much great history awesome there. Site. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody that's never seen it, you should check it out. It's the history of WWF.com. It's actually WWE. Oh, is it WWE now? Yeah, okay. it, it's, it, I think it's always been WWE. But yeah, I mean, big shout out to those guys. I mean, gr- great historical site that they have there. Dusty Rhodes and Mil Mascaris are back making sporadic appearances. They don't have any angles or storylines. They're just here. Right. Now, uh, both of them actually show up in April at the TV taping together. Meal basically stays, makes two to four appearances a month, uh, mostly in the uh, bigger city. Some reason they never did Philly, though. And um, like you said, no, uh, no feuds really with anyone. The highest profile match I remember saying was against Sergeant Slaughter at the Cap Center, in which he pinned Slaughter. And uh, for Dusty, I'm going to guess they brought him in because he was going to get the NWA title run at the time. And then as soon as that title won, so they bring him in for the April TV tapings. He wrestles both all-star and championship, two matches at each. So that TV takes him into June. He wins the NWA title, defends that all summer long. And then um, in September, after he loses it back, that's when uh, he makes another TV taping and has the uh, Madison Square Garden shot. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. Neil Moscaris had a, a match for the Intercontinental Championship against Don Morocco on the New Jersey Meadowland show where Bruno retired. I, I wish they had courted that, man. I'm sure it's in the library somewhere. Well, <laughs> I say this frequently, and that is that if they're sitting on that stuff, they've got to get it out there because, I mean, I'm 56 years old now, and, I, you know, by the time you, you got to get it out, so that guys like Jamie and I are still around the guys who appreciate or will appreciate it. Yeah. They really need to get more on their network. I mean, uh, I have this conversation with Ron Lemieux all the time. It's, it's just hard to believe they're sitting on all that stuff. And there's people like you, I Lemieux, John Lanigan that would just die to see these, these things. And we'd probably pay to see it. As a matter of fact, we did pay to see it before, you know, Peacock came. I don't know yeah. about you, but but I get Peacock with my with my cable, so now it doesn't cost me that extra ten bucks a month. Oh man, I got to pay five dollars a month for for Peacock and WWE. And yeah, they recently came out with like eight shows from nineteen eighty four. Only one of them I hadn't seen before, but I'm, I, it was the one with the first Bob Backlund versus Greg Valentine match from nineteen eighty four, and I'm looking forward to getting to that. Unfortunately. Football and baseball, well, baseball playoffs and regular season football are kind of keep me busy. Well, at least you had baseball playoffs. Ah, and, 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 and Sweet Lou. 
I mean, yeah, but I mean, still, I, I mean, even though the Red Sox are eliminated, I'm looking forward to seeing the World Series. I always, I always do. Uh, we're recording this on Monday. The first game of the World Series is Tuesday, and it's funny. We had a a baseball special earlier this year where I would say like eight people were asked by Brian last, who are you picking to win the world series? And like four or five of them, including myself took the Braves. And I thought I was making a weird selection and yet they're only four games away from winning it all. Yeah. They, they did a hell of a job this year. I mean, my Phillies, we did have first place for about four days and then at least, but at least we finished better than the Mets. And I told Brian last that I've been harassing him on it. <laughs> Brian Brian deserves <laughs> it. He picks the Mets to win every single year, regardless of what they have on the roster. I mean, good for him. He's a loyal Mets fan. All right. Now let's talk about something else they're doing in 1981. They have a guy in a blue mask and kind of a blue singlet that they're calling the executioner. Depending on the night he is wrestling, he's either Baron Mikkel Cicluna, Ron Shore, Han Schroeder, or probably even someone else. You could tell on TV he was a different guy every week. I don't know if it was like a, a running rib or what. Yeah, and they did the same thing a couple years later with the Black Demon where they throw Charlie Fulton into that mix. <laughs> That's right. I forgot all about that. And I'm going to um, throw, throw a name that I saw come up um, in the results. Don Serrano might have been one of the uh, executioners also. Don Serrano was usually the guy who was the black demon. It, it was Don Serrano who was in that outfit the night they had the Pat Patterson versus uh, Sergeant Slaughter Cobra clutch challenge where it was supposed to be slaughter against the black demon and black demon basically ran away. That was Serrano for sure. Right. That, that was Serrano. Yeah. And well, just why I think of it, is this the same period that they had the, um, oh, the guy dressed in all white, the white angel. The White Angel was was fall of 1982. Okay, and, later. Okay. And it was like Vince took over and he was doing different things. Like he brought in Ed Wiskowski's The Polish Prince. He brought in, oh, what was that? The name of that guy that was so horrible. Mighty Joe Thunder. There you go. <laughs> I mean, Vince was trying some different stuff and well, God bless him for trying. But that was that was interesting. A very young Kurt Henning arrives in the WWF, and he's here, but he is not getting pushed. He is going around. I saw him in 82 lose to Charlie Fulton in Nashua, and he's going around the horn doing draws with, like, Baron Mikkel Cicluna and Johnny Rods. I mean, he was just getting started, and at least he had the, the Henning name. Like, I knew who his dad was. And worse than that, he was doing jobs for uh, Bulldog Brower, who somehow was still hanging around. I actually the, know the story. He lived in Delaware, and if they just needed a body, he would be willing to drive out if it was like, you know, Philadelphia, Baltimore, right around where he lived. Yeah, he was on the Philly show just about every night and uh, or every month. I think he actually survived into almost 83, maybe, doing shots here or there. Oh, man. <laughs> Bulldog Brower looked awful in 1979. So I can, I mean, I've seen the tapes of him. You know, at Madison Square Garden in 81, Philly in 82. That was rough, man. He was morbidly obese. Yeah, well, they had the uh, the IWA title rematch, him and Mascaris. <laughs> Where they Madison have... Square Garden. <laughs> That's right. That was in that was right around the period we're talking about. And I, yes. I never even put that one together with the, yeah, the IWA I, title. I saw that match pop up when I was uh, looking at the results. <laughs> All right. And finally, SD Jones is back in the WWF. He is teaming with Tony Atlas. If Fuji and Saito were not a brand new team, I would have snuffed these two out as the next WWF tag team champions. They had some good matches with Fuji and Saito. Yeah, I really had hopes for it. I mean, I started watching wrestling a little bit in 76, and I remember SD being Philadelphia's favorite son. Uh, but, you know, he, he'd always give the heels a good match, but then wind up losing on television. And I really thought this was going to be the time that he got his push and him and Atlas were going to take the belts. I, I thought so, too. I mean, he came back in the spring. They actually let him do a couple of interviews and he was good. He he had this like he had charisma. I mean, the the fans liked him. And I've never understood why they didn't give him more. I mean, I understand you can't make him world champion. 
He's not going to be at Ivan Putsky's level, but he could have been, let's say, at Steve Travis's level, but they didn't even do that with him. No, no, they didn't. I mean, um, not until, what was it, 86 when they when they moved him to um, Antigua. And he, <laughs> and he developed an accent. Actually, he, he always had the accent. He may have exaggerated oh, yeah, it a he, little bit in 86. And that was one of the WWF top-selling action figures. And it's like, well, because it's basically the only black wrestler they had at the time. It was embarrassing. I still have the SD Jones one. Get out of here. Oh, yeah. I got a few of them left. I, I was never into the action figures. Well, Jamie. Still in the box. We have talked about WWF Ball of 1981. I wish I had come up with this concept a little bit earlier, but it was a great show. Thanks for doing it with me. Oh, my pleasure. That, that was a quick hour. It really was. Well, it's, it's always the quickest hour of my week. It goes by really fast. And, Jamie, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the great work that he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.